0: The Axe of the Blood God. (laughs) Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cat Bailey, and joining me today is Jeremy Parrish in the past. We actually recorded this episode about a week ago. And due to logistical problems, the fact that we were incredibly busy, uh, the fact that it required a little bit of recording, a little bit of editing, and the fact that I couldn't get my half of the interview off my phone until I got home, it did not go up until this week. But I'm posting it because Jeremy and I had an interesting conversation about the recently announced Final Fantasy VII remake. We were reacting it to it pretty much the day after it happened. So our reactions are really raw, but I think we really come around to it. Um, and then we continue on into a discussion about the upcoming near sequel. So I think that's really good. We start out about two minutes into the episode um, in the middle of Jeremy's story about interviewing Tetsu Nomura. Don't worry, you didn't miss it much except a hairdryer in the background. So in any case... I'm going to let you go now and I will see you on the other side of the episode. Have fun. So we might as well get right to it. Obviously it's, uh, it's all over the place. Now last night at Sony's press conference, square Enix finally announced the game that we've only been waiting for, for, I don't know, a decade, or at least a lot of people have. I don't know about the people in this room. The final fantasy seven remake is finally happening. Jeremy, what are your initial thoughts? Meh. <laughs> uh,
1: no, I mean, when I heard about it, I was actually really surprised. Um, and Why were you surprised? Because they've gone on for so long saying, yeah, that would just be too demanding, too intense for us, it would be so expensive, et cetera, et cetera, and then they turned it around. But I kind of, my understanding is that the reaction to Hashimoto's trolling last year really made them pause and say, hmm... I mean, maybe this is... A, it's a little bit of speculation on my part, but I, I really think that um... Yeah, the announcement that, hey, Final Fantasy 7 is coming to PS4, it's the PC port of the PS1 game, did not go over well, and Square Enix, I honestly feel, is really making a concerted effort to be better these days to get their problematic development on track Uh, you know and part of that is probably why Nomura gave such a great interview today because it's just part of a company wide effort to make people like them Hmm. they had a rough generation uh, this, this past console season and I think they want to get over that get past that
0: So when it comes to the Final Fantasy VII Remake, my first thought is that this is the Kobayashi Maru of video games. And if you're (laughs) not a freaking... I
1: don't believe in the no-win scenario.
0: (laughs) If you're not a freaking nerd like I am, um, that's a reference to Star Trek II, where it, as Jeremy said, was the no-win scenario. And in this case, it really is a no-win scenario, right? I mean... Either they make it exactly as it was, but really pretty, and people go, man, this game's really outdated, mechanically, um, and it's really weird, or they change it. Oh, they're, they're going to change it. Okay, um, well... Uh, so, so
1: I did my interview with um, Alexa Ray Korea from GameSpot. It was a surprise group interview, um, which we didn't know about in advance. She's a big Kingdom Hearts fan, and that's actually what the interview was mostly about. Mm -hmm.
0: Um,
1: And I don't want to spoil her story too much. I don't know if it's run yet. But basically, yeah, they said it doesn't make sense to have the PS4 version, you know, like the PC port of the PS1 game on PS4, and then, like, a prettier version of that. So take from that what you will.
0: So Don Corneo, gone?
1: Uh, Actually, I've been kind of keeping an eye on social media and websites and no actually Cloud will be in address. no more essays look forward to it I'm happy I like the weird stuff in Final Fantasy 7 my biggest concern is not will the weird stuff be killed off it's will they forget what the hell Cloud's characterization was in Final Fantasy 7 because he has probably the strongest character arc of any character in any Final Fantasy game he starts out as this cocksure swaggering jackass who is you know looking down on people sneering at them, and then discovers, oh my God, I'm not who I thought I was. My life is a lie. Falls into this you know like mopey coma, and then comes out of it confident but agreeable. He has a sense of humor. He's a funny guy. Like there's some snarky, witty dialogue in Final Fantasy VII, but in the in the spinoff stuff, he's just like, I'm cloud and I'm so sad about my life. And I hate that. Like, they they saw cloud in this tiny little slice, like, cloud in a wheelchair. That's, that's the cloud that is in the expanded universe stuff. It's like, they forgot he's not Squall Leonhardt. He's Cloud Strife. He's a different person. And I really hope they don't lose sight of that in the review.
0: The original cloud was really deconstruction of the classical Japanese hero, right? I mean, in Final Fantasy, I mean, just in the sense of, his identity is totally a lie, but, you know, as you already said, he comes out of it and eventually says, let's mosey. Um, if they take that element out of it, then they effect- they effectively compromise the entire structure of the game because his identity, like Crisis, has no point then.
1: Yeah, Cloud is, is really interesting because, you know, Final Fantasy VII was really strongly influenced by Neon Genesis Evangelion. And Evangelion was written... Because Hideaki Ano, the director, suffered major, major depression, and this was like that 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 TV series was his therapy. He was, like, he was Shinji Akari, and he was working through a lot of things in a very public way. And watching, watching Evangelion as an adult now with a better understanding of depression and how it affects people, like I am really struck by how deeply personal that show was. I don't think Final Fantasy VII had that connection. There was, like, a deep kind of personal connection with Kitase. He, he wrote Final Fantasy VII in part because... I, am, I, am I thinking right? He, he had lost his mother, and that was part of... Or maybe that was Spirits Within. No, let's not say it was Spirits Within, because that would be depressing. Um, <laughs> so so I, I do think there was a personal connection, but because it doesn't have that same, like... You know, from within element that Evangelion does, it was kind of like you know taking notes from Evangelion, but without the the personal context. Um, I think it is easy for that that story to get lost. So that, that's something that hasn't been lost in any uh, like the the Evangelion remakes. Like it's still very much about Shinji's got it rough um, and how is he working through all of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know exactly where I'm going with this. I guess I guess what I'm saying is that you know. They need they need reminders I think of what the the story was really about so that they don't lose track of it because if you take away the growth arc of cloud that's really the most interesting and compelling thing about Final Fantasy 7 I think Sephiroth is actually kind of crappy as a villain and it, it like it, it really is about the the family that that cloud surrounds himself with and the the his, you know, self-discovery and self-actualization. And I, I really, I really want them to capture that in, in the remake and really do it right, because the original Seven was a pretty rough work. It was very experimental and very progressive and kind of pushing a lot of boundaries. And that makes it a little hard to go back to. So I want this to be like the realization of everything that was good about Seven.
0: Let's rewind back to 1997. It's the dawn of the PlayStation. And when Final Fantasy VII came out, I mean, it was like a nuclear bomb in terms of just, I mean, first of all, it made JRPGs a truly relevant genre in the US. And when I say relevant, I mean maybe the most important genre at that time. But are you going to? I wouldn't say that. It was the definition of AAA.
1: I wouldn't go that far, but it definitely awakened American console gamers to the fact that, oh, these RPGs are pretty cool, which is something that had taken almost a decade for them to
0: cotton to. It was big enough that Sony ensured that, essentially, Sony's counter-programming when the Dreamcast came out was Final Fantasy VIII, Mm -hmm. which, essentially, at that time, Final Fantasy was Sony's Call of Duty. It was, like, the killer app. It was the exclusive to have. And Final Fantasy VII was so impactful at its time because at that time, obviously, CDs were like CD-ROM games was a new medium. Um, it hadn't been done particularly well on the PC. Like, um, I played a lot of PC games at that time, and the main thing was it would have voices or it have a new animation. But it yeah, felt-
1: I mean, the, the there were quite a few CD-ROM RPGs by that point, mostly on like mm-hmm. PC Engine CD, but it was stuff like Cosmic Fantasy where it was just a 16-bit RPG with a lot of anime in it, and and Seven really used it, it. It had the CG cutscenes, but it used a lot of that space for these elaborate, beautiful backgrounds with pulsing animation and lights, and even you know to a certain degree integration with the the cutscenes themselves.
0: Oh, Final Fantasy VII. <sighs> It felt like a game that could not exist on any other format at that time. Uh, Like, you looked at it and you said, this couldn't be on the N64, it would never fit on the cartridges. Oh my god, it has three CDs, this game is gigantic. It popularized just this notion of, wow, it has multiple discs, it must be good. And in a very different way than it is now. Like When I look at a cutscene today, I'm like, oh god, cutscenes, because it's it's not a novelty anymore. But in Final Fantasy VII, the cutscenes were a novelty. No, they weren't great because they were... I mean, they varied differently stylistically because you had... Sometimes the chibi characters are in there. Sometimes you had the really nice full-size characters.
1: Square was learning how to do this as they went. This was their testing ground for new technologies and new approaches to cinematic integration and story integration. And so they actually... Like, the key cutscenes in the game are the worst looking because they were the ones that were done first. And then uh, as they developed, they, uh, they, I think they had a Hawaiian studio uh, who did the more realistic looking characters. So <laughs> it, it's funny because there's, like, key cutscenes late in the game that uh, they just stand out so much because, like, as you go through the game, like, the early stuff is kind of the, the super deformed characters and then it starts to get to the more lanky, realistically proportioned characters, and then all of a sudden you go back to these like really dramatic cutscenes where all of a sudden the people look like little little Lego figurines again, and you're just like, ah, I can't really get into that. Even at the time, it was
0: yeah, it was, it was a weird. Awkward. But the best, the key cutscenes, the ones that were really realistic, the ones that stand out in our memory, uh, Sephiroth killing Eris. Right. Um,
1: or is it Erith
0: erith or Eris? How's it going to be well, localized? It's going
1: to be localized Erith
0: Sephiroth killing Aerith, obviously, is a really iconic moment in, like, JRPG history. Um, in gaming history, like, it might have been probably the most memorable cutscene ever at that time, and that was in the the more realistic version. And for me, like, when I was playing Final Fantasy VII back in the day, like, the marker for when the game really got good, what, for me, was always when they were escaping from Shinra, and you see Cloud riding the, the motorcycle... motorcycle. Yeah. And the chase was on, and I was like, "Oh yeah!" And that's the first time you see them as the more realistically mm-hmm. proportioned characters. I'm like, "Yeah, now the game's good." Um, so,
1: which is I, funny because I always feel like it loses something once it leaves Midgar. Really? The, the first Midgar. Mid, Midgar is so it's so densely structured, and there's so much storytelling, but you're still playing. And even though it takes some weird detours, like the Honeybee Manor. I, I don't know. It, it was just really, it was like nothing else I'd ever played at that point.
0: I was always just in a hurry to get out of Midgar hmm. just because what I, you like, I did
1: love about sci-fi dystopias? It was great. It was There was a rotting pizza.
0: Well, I think a lot of the charm of Final Fantasy VII aside from just the fact that I had never played anything like it at that time was its sheer scope. Mm-hmm. And uh, everybody will tell you that, you know, it was a revelation when they got out of Midgar and they were like, oh my God, like, Midgar seemed huge, but, now I've got this giant world to explore. Yeah,
1: it's like this little disc in the middle of this big, open, gross-looking crater, and then there's this whole world. I, I will, I will definitely admit, like the you know the scene where you descend the wall of Midgar and leave. There's like this kind of wistful music. Um, it's like you're leaving something behind, and then you step out into the, to the overworld, and it's you know, like it's all polygons, and it's. Spinning around you, and it's huge, and the overworld theme was really different. It was like this whole seven-minute symphonic movement, all done with those kind of like weird science fiction synthesizers that Uematsu Uematsu used for the soundtrack. It was, yeah okay, you know that was.
0: And there were so many, moment. oh my god! There like it's all rushing back to me like so many cool moments like the the giant, the giant cannon. Uh, that was featured in the, the featured in the ads, yes. um, and the the, the the big monsters coming straight something straight out of Godzilla, and all the guns are firing, and I was like, "Oh my God, this is so epic.
1: They really lucked out that the monsters approached them from the direction the cannon was facing
0: <laughs> and then when the oh, weapon That was a
1: lucky break
0: and when the weapons attack uh, Midgar, you know, yeah, that was in the super deformed version, but it was still really cool.
1: But let's not forget that Final Fantasy VII had a lot of really just, like, what are we doing here moments. Like, there's a part where you go to an excavation and you have to... There's, like, a whole minigame around digging for fossils. There's the bit where, like, a dolphin saves a girl and she's drowning and you have to do a minigame to do CPR. Like, that game kind of innovated QTEs. I'm not sure that's a good thing. There's the slap fight between Tifa and uh, Scarlet on top of the midgar cannon or whatever it is like, oh my god we can, I forgot we can lose about some that of that we can lose some of that stuff the
0: train chase
1: the train chase
0: remember they're remember. all on the no, it's not a train chase they're on top of a train and then it ends up plowing into the plowing into the town
1: oh yeah and yeah the whole like side story with Barrett and Dine. and
0: it felt like an anime series yeah
1: like there's there's a lot to that game and' I'm, I'm Hoping they kind of streamline it because some of it, like I like the weird stuff, but some of it was just like, uh, what is this filler? I mean, they've got to keep you know Wutai, where Yuffie steals the materia and you chase her around. Like that's that's funny. That's a funny episode of Anodyne right there. And
0: Wutai was brilliant because, I mean, just the fact that if you deigned to go explore it, you could find an entire other continent that was purely optional mm-hmm. and had a giant side quest to do. That included, you know, as you said, Yuffie doing things, and the Turks show up, and the Turks were great. They're just great they characters. Have to be the Turks, they they will
1: obviously, but you know, something that I hope that they really explore with with the remake is the role of Utai, which was to present this world that was more than Midgar and a bunch of provincial villages. Like Utai was this entire kingdom that had been at war with Midgar and had ended up losing out. And that didn't really come across in the game. It was just like this village with a giant Buddha statue. And they, they did a better job of kind of building that up in Crisis Core. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, the, the sort of sense of scale that we've seen in the, the trailer for the remake really comes across in areas like that. Like, it, there's, there's so much raw material, so much potential with Final Fantasy VII. It, it really is... One of the absolute biggest RPG stories ever, and it was so such a such a glorious mess. I really, yeah, I really want this remake to be the realization of what Final Fantasy VII could and should have been.
0: So, when I was in college, I played Final Fantasy X for the first time. It was like 2002, and I finished Final Fantasy X. And I was like, wow, that was great. Ah, now I want to replay all the Final Fantasies. So I started with 8, because that was one that I had handy. And like playing 8 was like a revelation. I was like, wow, this is...
1: Game's s- awesome, and everyone's stupid.
0: Exactly. I was like, wow, this game is so good. And then I played 9, and I really enjoyed it. And then I tried to go back to 7, which had been my favorite game. I was like, I was adamant. Final Fantasy 7 is the best game ever made. There's nothing better than this game. And then I played it, and I was like, I can't get into it. I, I can't get into it. And I am still in that boat. I, I downloaded it on my PSP when it came out on the PSP, and I tried to play it. And I got—I always got—I always just lost the thread when I got to the part where Cloud meets Aerith. And it's like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Get through the little chase and the thing, and can we can we get out of Midgar now? I I don't know. I I
1: like I like all the stuff in Midgar. I like the hero meeting a girl and going to meet her mom. It's just... it's.
0: <laughs> I, I, I agree.
1: You described it as, as like an anime series, and it really is. It's like every chunk of the game, every kind of story arc is an episode, and you could string it together for a, or for a full 26 episodes and have just a series out of it.
0: I I never liked Aerith. I was not an Aerith fan.
1: I thought she was kind of boring and goody-goody at first, and then... More recently I realized that I was really just judging her by her appearance. Eris Aerith, Eris, whatever, is actually a really interesting character. She's really sly and really kind of um, kind of naughty. Mm. Like she's the one who encourages Cloud to cross-dress, and she thinks it's great. And she's always making flirtatious innuendos. Tifa, like, people will judge her by her appearance too, because they designed her to wear like skin tight clothing and a mini skirt and she has huge breasts but she's actually just like a really sweet down home girl next door and she's really embarrassed about like you know very shy about uh, her budding relationship with Cloud and she's much more like you know like uh, she's more sweet and gentle even though she's you know the, the fisticuffs brawler and Aerith is like the weakling mage who has a, a staff that barely hits for anything she's like, she's a firebrand. She's a, she's a saucy character. I, I, I hope those characterizations come through better and people can look past the appearances. Just because she's got a pink dress on and is physically weak, that doesn't mean anything.
0: I was very much in that period of my life where I only respected strong women who weren't feminine, and I saw femininity as maybe a sign of weakness, so, I mean, that was just a part of my life at that time. So I loved Tifa, and I loved Yuffie, who were cool. And Aerith, Aerith was like, oh, yeah, typical whatever. Just And I would always go out of my way to try and get Barrett as Cloud's yes. uh, date. I did like, you ever actually, get him?
1: I, uh, no, I had to watch that on YouTube, but I did get Yuffie, and that was fun.
0: Oh, man, that's so much fun. God, I loved Yuffie. She was great.
1: Yeah, the the but the thing is, like I I really don't think that that uh, Aerith is the uh, the kind of weak, super feminine character that no, that no. she gets painted as. She's actually she has the most agency of anyone in the game. She's the one who makes the choice to sacrifice her life, and she really is kind of the. I'm sorry if I'm spoiling this for anyone who
0: hasn't played it.
1: Do we have to do spoiler alerts now? I don't know. This game isn't, this remake's not coming out until at least 2019, so...
0: No, it's coming out in 2017. There's just no way they missed the 20th anniversary. No way.
1: <laughs> oh, you keep, you, you, you don't ever lose that sweet, innocence, cat.
0: You know that they're going to have a cattle prod, and it's like, every time Nomura goes out for a smoke break, somebody's going to be waiting there, arrow it's like, get back in there and get back to work. <laughs> uh, that's a nice thought, but... Okay,
1: anyway, um, yes, spoilers. Like, Aerith Ar- is the one, the, the character who makes the most conscious decisions about her fate and her destiny and, and her role in the game. And she chooses to sacrifice herself, and yes, she's murdered by the villain, but, like, that's her doing. She knew what she was in for. So I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that there's really an opportunity with the, the remake to kind of dig into some of this. And the fact that Kazushige Nojima is doing the, uh, you know, he's working on the scenario. He was the original scenario writer for the original game. Um, it, it makes me optimistic that they'll they'll be able to dig into those themes and not lose sight of, of the game's kind of underlying ideas and the things that made it so unique.
0: I... I was really hoping that Yoshida would end up being attached to it. I know that he's super, super duper into Final Fantasy XIV, but that dude loves himself some Final Fantasy VII. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if anybody could really nail that game in HD and like just the wild appeal of it, it would be him. Now, like it's tempting to say that what made Final Fantasy VII so cool in 1997 just can't be replicated today because mm-hmm. it is a totally different era Absolutely. in games. But when I think and to a large extent that's true. But when I think about just thinking about it right now, I'm like, they don't make games like that anymore. They don't make games with that kind of just bizarre, really like. Road at the wall. It's a strange story.
1: I don't know. You talk to the guys who are making near today.
0: Even they. Well, first of all, they said, we're really different. We're really, like, we're not normal. They even said that. They're like, we are not normal among Japanese developers. Oh, yeah. It, Final Fantasy VII was this big, sprawling, messy, ambitious thing that really seemed to want to be more than a video game. Mm-hmm. And I totally respect that. And I don't want to paint video games with too broad a brush, uh, but triple ga- AAA games in particular really go down a very mass market path. Mm -hmm. And Final Fantasy VII was trying to challenge the imagination with its themes, with its characterizations. It maybe didn't always succeed, but really, in retrospect, it was kind of a fascinating game. And, well, like I said, it was deconstruction. So, I think in that regard, it can hold up. It can... I don't, we'll see if it ends up being an artifact, or if it ends up being just a a really, something truly different and interesting that gives us a new perspective on RPGs. Well, that's why I keep
1: talking about the themes and the, the sort of misunderstandings that sort of afflict Final Fantasy VII, because I don't think Final Fantasy VII Remake can have the same impact that it did 20 years ago, because... Know, games have caught up and surpassed it. It just it doesn't hold that same place, but I do feel that they can still make a game that is worth playing and you know worth being regarded as a classic by really getting to some of the the big ambitions behind Final Fantasy VII and realizing them more effectively. And if they can do that, it would still be a unique video game experience because there were so many ideas and concepts that were presented, but very messily and often very confusingly and not just because of the localization in, in the original game. I think I think it still has the potential for greatness, just in, in that regard.
0: And so we come around to why I am actually really excited to play this game because I have not experienced... I haven't really been able to play the original because just technically... Uh, graphically and it's it's such a messy game that it doesn't hold up super well I that I'm but I'm eager to I'm eager to experience it again in a new context
1: I, I actually can still enjoy Final Fantasy VII because there is just this spirit behind it and even now things like the first time okay after after the bombing mission in the opening the team kind of runs their own separate ways, and then reconvenes on a subway train, and they start kind of explaining what the city's like, and then it kind of cuts to the exterior of the train, and it shows it rounding a track on this huge structure, and it pulls back, and you really just get a sense of like, they're, they're, this city is massive, this, this world is, is dense and interesting. There's just scenes like that, and even even the small scenes, like uh, you know, just hanging the the, the characters hanging out on a playground, uh, talking while sliding down this weird kid slide that looks like a cat's head, which was in the the trailer. Like clearly, that's something that it, it's it's almost an incidental little bit of the game, but they they clearly like the creators of the game felt it was important enough to make that a part of the visuals, the very brief package of, of incidental visuals that is being used to make people excited for the remake. Like, I think they get it. I think they realize that Final Fantasy VII wasn't just about cool cloud and, oh my god, Sephiroth is so evil, but also just the little moments. And I really want to see those in you know, HD.
0: Well, we'll have plenty of time to discuss Final Fantasy VII going forward. I'm gonna do my best to get Shane Bentonhausen on the show because he's he's he has thoughts. (laughs) He'll have thoughts. But let's move on really quickly. Another really a much more um, perhaps an even more surprising announcement was the news that *Nier* is getting a sequel on the PlayStation 4, and not only that, is being made by Platinum Games. Now, Yoko Taro, who was the original's, I guess, director, um, creator. Author is attached to it, and in fact, I interviewed him today, and I got a whole bunch of new info. And it was really interesting talking to him. A very he's a very different individual, and he almost seems ambivalent about making he about the games themselves. Yes, he is. Okay. Yes, um, I saw him without the mask. And he doesn't have scrambled eggs, right? <laughs> no, he does not. Disappointing. Um, so Nier, just to introduce, is kind of regarded as this cult classic now. At the time, it was really panned critically, and frankly, it was, technically, it was pretty rough, right. um, as his games tend to be.
1: And that's why the, the collaboration with Platinum makes so much sense to me.
0: Absolutely, yes. Now, here's the funny thing. He's even he seems a little baffled by why people like Nier. I was like, well, I, I mean, you know that in the U.S., Nier is considered kind of a cult classic. How does that make you feel? Like, what are your thoughts on that? And he's like, I don't know why people like this game. <laughs> and I was like, oh, how do you... What does this game mean to you, actually, like, personally? And he said, it's just a job. And I'm like, ouch. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It was commissioned by Square Enix, he said. And my feeling is that maybe they're going for something a little more mass market. But it was interesting. No, you
1: don't, you don't reach out to Platinum if you want a mass market game. You reach uh-huh. out to Platinum if you want a game that is going to be just mechanically perfect. But how many, how many million sellers has Platinum had? Metal Gear Rising Revengeance, maybe? Because of the license. Yeah. Platinum makes beautiful, perfect, exquisite commercial failures.
0: When I say mass market, I mean more polished, more accessible, because these games are notoriously Mm -hmm. inaccessible. Janky. Janky. Which, I said this in my post, I said that... It's charming a, a lo-fi can be really charming when you're watching a movie, but it's really distracting when you're playing an action game. But anyway, I'm I'm really curious to see what comes out of this. I did ask him. I said, "What is kind of your like philosophy because like your games are really dark. Like all of his character his protagonists usually end up being terrible people." Uh, they're killers, they're not not nice. And there are people who've said that he's a nihilist. He made
1: Drakengard, Drakengard, right?
0: Yeah. He made the Drakengard series, where Drakengard 3 came out, and the main character was just a psychopath. Like, she was just killing everybody, and she was enjoying it. And I said, why did you take this approach? And he said, I... I've always been confused by games where... um, People are killing people. It's like, what kind of what kind of mindset do you have to be in? Like, how does that impact you, that you're killing all these people in a video game? Because so many of these video games are super violent. And so I just assumed that these people are terrible, like that they are not good people, that on some level they enjoy it. And so I put that into my games. So he made the real Nathan Bruce pretty much. Nathan Drake who's killed like practically the entire world at this point. I'm curious to see Nier new
1: project come to fruition. It's mm-hmm. probably going to be a while too but should be interesting. Yeah,
0: they just got started. Um, apparently it will not have the shadow monsters from the original Nier. It will have new creatures. It will have three characters um, who will come in to play at various points. And, um... And there will, and he's, uh, so fishing, fishing in year was kind of a controversial feature. I asked yes. him, will there be fishing in this one? And he laughed and he said, I remember fishing was not popular. Uh, do you want fishing in this? And I said, I just wanted to know if it was in it. And he said, well, we're still deciding. And I was like, why did you put fishing in Nier in the first place, and he said, you know, to be honest, I was playing Animal Crossing at the time, <laughs> and I liked it.
1: <laughs> That's um, the weirdest combination of games. Like Of all the games that Nier drew inspiration from, I wouldn't have played Animal Crossing.
0: And I asked him, I said, "If when Nier was being promoted, there was a lot of talk about the fact that one of the characters was intersexed. And I said are you going to have something similar? Like, are you going to have an intersex character in this near? And he said that he was still thinking about the characters. Like, it seems like the characters are still in their very early stages in terms, they've just been sketched out. And he said, as for why he decided to put an intersex character in the original near, he said, there are people just like that in the world. And so I decided to put one in because, which, you know, makes sense to me. I mean, why do you have to make it super dramatized there are people who are in fact intersexed, and they are perfectly ordinary people. Uh, you know, in this case, she's like a crazy awesome warrior or something. So I was like, cool. You know, that is actually kind of cool. He seems to have a he seems to have his head on straight. He does, and he seems troubled, like many people, about the kind of the state of the industry, like. One of Your big theory is that EA is kind of at the end of the world, and do you want to allow... E3 is at the end of the world, EA too, but E3 is at the end of the world. Could you kind of elaborate on that really briefly?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, the simple fact that E3 exists as a retail uh, opportunity. The press covers it, and it's, oh, lots of video games announcements, but really it's where publishers meet with retailers and say, will you please buy a lot of our games? Uh, for this fall, and that aspect of the business is, is shrinking. Uh, the games business as a whole is getting bigger, but there just aren't as many packaged retail games, and therefore the need for E3, it, as it traditionally exists, uh, existed, just is shrinking. Uh, and so I think E3 needs to evolve or die, and I don't know which is going to happen.
0: And part of that is the breakdown of the AAA model the fact that the business model is perhaps unsustainable. And he seems deeply skeptical of that AAA model. And he actually said that it was his opinion that much like JRPGs uh, declined significantly in the 2000s, he was of the opinion that the AAA shooter was an endangered species. And Mm -hmm. I don't Necessarily agree with him because I think action games have a broader appeal than he's. I don't. I don't think it's a
1: coincidence that sorry to interrupt uh, that Microsoft showed such a broad range of games this mm. year and, and much less violent games uh, than they have in the past. This was a much less violent E three all around. I think. I think publishers realize we can't keep leaning on these. You know, like the Call of Duties and the Uncharted's. Those are fine to have. We need those but that can't be everything.
0: I, he said again and again, I just want to make something different. I want to make something unique. And uh, I can respect that. And he even asked, like, are there American developers who are like that? I'm like, well, Jenova oh, Chen, Jonathan Blow. No de- developers yeah.
1: like that. They're just not working in the AAA state.
0: And he was kind of like, hmm, interesting. So it was a very illuminating discussion. And, you know, the fact that Platinum is attached to this project, really raises its profile, and I'm, I'm interested. I want to play it. Yeah. Anyway, so we got to get going. We're going to dinner. We're going to be creating awards for various E3 games, and there's... Also writing about stuff. Two more days of E3 to go. Oh, man. But thanks for dropping by, listening to some Acts of the Blood God You can check out more U.S. Gamer coverage on our site, our YouTube channel, U.S. GamerNet, etc., etc. And, of course, we'll be talking a whole hell of a lot more about Final Fantasy VII. So please look forward to that. Jeremy, thanks for dropping by. Yep. And we will talk to you later. Happy adventuring. We're off to E3. Bye-bye.